The Q Affair. Part 2. Chapter 10. Desiree was initially happy with the attention the email received, despite her criticisms of how All Rock Together had handled it. The new subs seemed to be on board with the new narrative, which she explained over and over, as it wasn't easy to follow the relevance of the email and the new connections to gang activity it opened up. It revealed, mostly through what the lawyer wrote back to her about his client, that the Mancino mob boss had controlled a lot of gang activity for the Irish Mafia in Chicago. And of course, the Irish troll, me, was up to her neck in that, with the mob being very active in wanting to restart the war in Ireland. To the world, it looked like it had ended, but hadn't really, with Ireland also up to the neck in Palestine and meddling in US matters, in proxy wars, in all sorts of places. The terrorism of the Irish troll was getting exposed as was the Jewish anti-cult cult that had hired me to go after her daughter when they couldn't get to her. They knew what they were signing me up to do years back and knew of my ruthlessness too and how driven I was to do it, being a mercenary for hire already. It was clear that I'd never stop until I'd silenced her forever and got the genocidal killing spree really underway, with all the Irish Mafia cheering me on. Wow, I'd really become kind of a big deal in her mind, and a central character in her stalker gang. I was so glad I was a big deal in Jay's mind, for entirely different reasons. And the contrast was amazing, as I could be in Twitter DMs watching Desiree's live stream with another browser tab open, while chatting to him, with him figuratively speaking, telling me he was holding my hand tightly, or asking me if I wanted a hug during her nightly verbal assaults, or right after she'd just called me a murderous thug or filthy slut terrorist, or some such unhinged thing as her subs agreed with her in chat that I sounded like I was a very dangerous and very evil person indeed. We had cups of tea together throughout the evenings as we chatted, watched bits of videos from truther content together, or talked about other things, sensible things that were happening, and crazy dreams, like his being a time traveller all jumbled up, stuff that made you wonder where his dreams ended and his reality started, and challenged you to question everything you took for granted about your reality, and what kind of reality you were in while in there talking to him, and what kind when not. I always made sure to really make tea when I said I would, to have something real to hold on to and imbibe. Tea fixes everything, I used to say. It does, you know. Can't beat a nice cup of tea, even when there's nothing needing to be fixed. Takes out a flask from somewhere about my person and unscrewing the top while still on the move, hands you a cup with a smile. That'll keep you going. Rest coming up soon. We posted little jokey cartoon gifts between our comments sometimes in DMs 
an extra you didn't have available to you in YouTube's comments. And we were able this way to extend our repertoire of play with language, to let off steam and entertain each other, even more than we could in my comments section, where Desiree and others were sure to read through our comments, looking to turn it into something suspicious to add to their narratives. Although there was a huge element of not being yourself involved, partly because of the constraints of the medium, which limited you to written communication only. You could be more yourself because you could relax. And often it felt like home as I arrived back from work to find virtual notes pinned on a DM GIF fridge for me, just to say hello or kettles on, love you, see you later, or some little thing to make you smile while I was waiting for the real kettle to boil checking my messages on the laptop. Then, if I had not fallen asleep after my cup of tea was had, and he'd not sent another message, I could usually expect him to turn up somewhere later in the evening, either in my comments after my dinner time, or more usually, having left a few new YouTube comments on old videos, like maybe an ASCII picture of a cat, or a pretty little I love Donna Emerald message with butterflies floating around it. Or first thing in the morning, often a breakfast tray gif with piping hot coffee and fresh croissant. Then when I'd finished looking at the notifications for those, there'd be a new Twitter not notification pop up on the Twitter tab I now left up permanently, which when I opened the DM asked, are you there? I'd usually hurry to answer, hoping he'd seen my yes before he went, as it meant he might disappear off before trying again in an hour or so, an hour in which I was sure to be restless, wanting to talk to him again. I certainly wasn't out of his thoughts often during the day, and he often was in mine, as I found myself smiling stupidly, even while my feet hurt, towards the end of a shift wondering what he'd posted for me to read when I got home. It was odd because I didn't always enjoy our conversations. As you can gather, unless you're particularly dim, no reader, never that, since we have a meeting of minds here, I feel, and you are oh so bright and sunny a presence that I must withdraw my hand from yours to shade my eyes from you, not just to recover the flask and not just to prevent you imagining for one second that I may be the clingy type, which is a despicable trait in a human, while delightful in cats, bats, caterpillars, though not burrs, pauses for breath, then squints at you chewing my bottom lip before pouring a swig of tea and recapping the flask and spiriting it away somewhere, making you feel like an exotic insect being examined momentarily. The ones I liked best were the ones where Q didn't come up. I'm afraid Q came up quite often, which was understandable, given that Jay was supposed to be Q. He gave me little snippets of more about himself too that his first name was, in fact, Jay, and his second, really Quinn. He said one of the reasons he liked me was that I reminded him of home, which he'd left as a child. He grew up partly in Ireland before lying about his age to run away and join the military. I was, let's say, deeply dubious, 
and not least about the Irish origins claim, as there were all sorts of strange bits in his stories that hung together about as well as the logic of the cue drops, which he was also inflicting on me in the DM window, telling me he was trying to deprogram me from the terrible brainwashing that society had inflicted on me, as it does us all. How kind of him. In fact, I found this particular streak of arrogance on his part extraordinary. This went way beyond pretending for a joke that we were both participating in creating something imaginative by my continuing to listen with this new revelation about how brainwashed I was for seeming not to believe everything he was saying about Q. This was a bit insulting in my view to be calling me brainwashed without knowing anything about me. Although to give him his due, he was wasting no time in asking all sorts of questions to find out about me. What foods did I like? What my tastes were in men? Which music I listened to? What did I think about various spiritual beliefs? What books had I read? Was I from a big or small family? Why had I no children or never been married? I was flattered that he was interested in those things and felt the least I could do was to listen to him talk about Q and look at the links he was posting to various things the Q posts wanted to call attention to, most of which required a lot of reading, I realised, with a sinking heart. I didn't think I'd ever really find it interesting, but I resolved to at least try to read the links when he wasn't there in reciprocal politeness for his taking an interest in my life. There were too many to keep up with, as he was proving to be an extremely energetic person when it came to enthusing about Q and re-educating me so that I wouldn't be so brainwashed and all that undesirable stuff that was holding me back from whatever. Pardon, dear reader? I sounded quite annoyed. Yes, I suppose I was, at the idea of him thinking he knew me so fast and that my judgment was so poor, yet still wanting to love such a brainwashed fool anyway, that he would try to remake her anew. A little annoyed, yes, while loving him too, as he could be warm and caring and very humorous and very imaginative, if not always very logical. I sometimes made videos to take him places in our mutual imaginations, secretly, places that I loved, with my few other subs not realising that I was thinking solely of him while they were just tagalongs, and I hoped that a painting expedition or picnic or mountain climbed on my own would bring him off too with me alone. I had once dreamed, many years previously, of climbing a mountain in fact, and was a little sad when at the top that there was nobody to turn to and say, is that not beautiful? And see the beauty equaled and doubled, perhaps, by the pleasure of making one's beloved smile back and agree that it was. That dream had long been forgotten, but I remembered it now and revived it especially for him and climbed a mountain happily filled with renewed energy that love gives, and asked him, was it not beautiful at the top? He agreed it was, and I was happy to have made another human being I loved as happy as myself.
I would have been surprised at myself, since I'd long ago become kung fu, as they say, at being alone and didn't suffer loneliness, having proudly conquered that summit. But I had also been acquainted with human love and knew the craziness of it and how it hijacked your logic so that your body took over your mind with all sorts of metabolic things beyond your control, which you just had to accept were going to be sticking around for a while, at least until the relationship lasted for long enough for your body to get whatever it needed to do out of the way and normal thinking resumed. I tried to keep a sense of humour about myself and just enjoy my stupidity while it was ongoing. Being in love is fun, even if, if it means you forget what you walked into rooms for because you were thinking of a face rather than the keys for your house, which you need because you have to go around to the shops, having run out of milk for that cup of tea you wanted. I'd no face for him either. I knew so little and begged him to tell me at least the colour of his hair and eyes. I will create a ghost, I pointed out, if you give me nothing. And we, if we ever meet, I won't be able to come to terms with the face that doesn't match what's in my mind. We had started to fantasise about meeting up, with him asking a series of questions along the lines of what I would do on a date or where I would like to go with him when we met. The meeting wouldn't happen soon, he pointed out. I'm Q, after all and saving the world. I made fun of that so many times because I found it so funny, but later learned to just say it in my mind since it annoyed him so much. I used to start sentences with, I know you're saving the world and all that, but then go on to mention somewhere I'd like to go with them or something I'd like to do when we would finally meet. He reckoned it was going to take at least another year to save the world which I figured was pretty good going for anyone. A few days later, he presented me in the DM window with a photo which he claimed was one taken from his time in the British Army while on a mission in the Middle East. Did I mention he'd all also said he was in the US Navy later? No? Yes, it's rather odd, isn't it? Because he was in all sorts of places during the course of his career. Currently, he was an army captain, he told me, and working for the NSA. But he'd been in the French Foreign Legion first, then after a while specialising in army psyops in the Middle East, where the small photo he showed was taken. He'd been in the US Navy for a while too. I see, I said, although I didn't at all, it making no kind of sense as I peered at the photo. Well, aren't you handsome? The man in the photo was sitting on the ground, his back to a dusty wall, all geared up, head to toe in camo with helmet and big gun or rifle or whatever in his handsome lap. A bit too handsome, I thought, as the man looked like he was in his early thirties and had a chiselled model appearance that made me wonder why, as the cute thing did, he was hanging out with me. I mean, I know I'm fabulous for a gal in her fifties, in a faded glamour kind of way, with pleasantly distressed edges, like a pretty patina on a favourite fine sideboard. But really, 
I began to suspect this guy might be a 300 pound paralyzed guy typing with the mouth stick while trapped in an iron lung, desperate for excitement and adventure, but unable to move or go anywhere. I didn't begrudge the guy his fantasy as the comedic aspect of the thing was getting so entertaining again. What with the time traveller revelations added to the QNSA puzzler revelation, spending days whiling the time away chatting to me, then dashing off some queue posts before getting back to the troops. H.G. Wells had a tight schedule, but a lenient boss holding the time travel machine's door open for him, I supposed. I wondered who the guy in the photo was, as I allowed myself a good laugh while examining the tiny photo on my screen. Do you not like me? He ventured eventually. Yes, dear, I said. You are a 12 out of 10 on the attractiveness scale, if a bit too young for me. I can't think why you are not with a very attractive and younger woman, though. He seemed happy enough that I was pleased with his appearance, although I felt sure somehow he'd been confident I would be, since he'd asked me so many questions while starting to get to know me about what looks I liked in men and what age men I would date. Even once, how ugly would a man have to be for me to not want to date him? He assured me the photo was taken long ago while serving on a PSYOPs mission in Afghanistan. Secret, of course, hence the covered army patches, and he was taking big risks showing it to me. Could he trust me? Yes, dear, of course. Top secret. Tell no one. Gotcha. I concluded that as well as a fantasist, he must be someone with a bit of a hang-up in the looks department, an impression first formed when he'd been so persistent about how ugly the guy would have to be for me to still want to date him, just before he'd surprise me with the pin-up quality young man in the desert. He certainly was a fanboy of soldiers, that much was clear. I was becoming a fan myself, I thought, looking at the chiselled and dusty model in the photo. Despite him being aware I was not taking him seriously enough in the Q faith department, he remained totally smitten with my charms and was endlessly attentive, loving and interested in me, aside from putting blocks of time every time I spoke to him into trying to persuade me he was Q, while I tried to be polite about it without actually lying outright by saying I believed him just to make him happy. There was a lot of I-seeing on my part. More cross Q emails had arrived into Desiree's inbox and the second thread of emails were as rambling as the first, with Q talking back and forth to some other new person now, too, in the email thread, who Jay now insisted was a Christian friend of his. Did I mention he was a rabid Christian as well? I'd a lot of reasons to dislike him, and yet I didn't, instead just finding his propensity for lying about anything and everything very irritating, as well as funny. Eventually, irritated by him pushing too much cue reading at me yet again one night, the reading of which I was not getting any more interested in or enlightened by, I called his bluff and asked 
when exactly we were ever going to get together for all these camping trips and fun dates in the real world. Don't you ever get time off from saving the world, ever? I inquired in what I hoped wasn't too pushy a manner. I'd started to trust him to the extent that I told him where I lived for when he visited, showing him pictures and videos of local sites so we could plan doing things together. He was exasperated that I just didn't seem to be taking the saving the world thing seriously when it was far bigger than the two of us. How could I not see what was so obvious or not care if the world went to hell while I just thought of myself and my pleasure? What about all the children to be saved? Did I want to just be selfish? What about them, I thought. I couldn't save every trafficked child. It wasn't my responsibility when I could hardly keep my own head above water. I thought of my job and how some tired moments had been made less of a burden lately when I'd imagined myself leaning back on him, holding me in his arms to take a little of the weight off my tired legs as I stood for the last hour or two of my day in the restaurant, longing to go home so I could sit down or imagined him invisibly helping me lift boxes of flour onto the top shelf of the storage room after deliveries arrived. His love had literally taken a weight off me by sustaining me a bit through the hard bits. It wasn't enough for him, though, this just loving him without the belief in Q and loving Q and wanting to save the world with Q. Me, I just wanted to meet him after he'd saved the world or whatever with all his other Q pals to see if we still enjoyed each other's company. And if we did, then there'd be a nice fella to go camping with and have a laugh. He'd been so knowledgeable about bushcraft and camping things and had me so looking forward to doing the outdoor things I loved doing with them. He'd even started sending me little camping, camping items in the post from time to time to stock up my supplies, like a tiny camping stove that I used as I got more efficient at hiking during that summer and could run and bike for miles before taking off my small backpack to prepare a meal, preparing myself for keeping up with a possibly very fit guy. It had started to occur to me that if he wasn't a guy in an iron lung typing with his teeth, he might be still fitter and younger than me. And if we met, I'd better be good and ready to do the stuff we'd planned to do. I never entirely believed it. And in one video I made for him, I remember saying as I was filming a hike, I'll bring you there sometime, pointing to a forest on the top of a hill pretending to be speaking to all my viewers, before adding the afterthought, I should do these things myself anyway. I resolved to do all these things myself anyway, as I was saying it, to avoid potential disappointment later on. The I can't do everything excuse didn't compute for him. He showed me a photograph of a dead child with a distended stomach, lying in a dusty desert, and told me I didn't care that the child was dead. I was convinced at this stage that his brain didn't work correctly, and as the Q proofs he offered me to convince me of the reality of Q were embarrassingly illogical in my eyes, I still wasn't sure if he was a Discordian having a rather tasteless joke that he would eventually fess up to, 
or if it was just not the full shilling, as they say. If I tried to debate each point from cue posts he showed me, such as the hidden codes constructed of gematria numbers applied to specific numbers within Trump's tweets, and I pointed out that one could make a lot of other new words, codes, from other letters too within them, and number combinations turned back into letters in Q's tortuous and tortured logic. He got very irritated indeed, and argued more using different proofs, such as shapes on Melania's dresses that looked like something Q had mentioned in a Q drop and similar head-melting nonsense, which didn't make any logical sense. I would then point out that he was associating similar things rather than applying logical thinking to the proof he was showing, and he'd skip off to find something else to show me instead of dealing with it in a logical way. He just had no ability to be logical, and I still wondered if he were just playing a joke because surely he was not this crazy. He was shaping up to be as crazy as any Q believer, whereas at least with Q himself, you felt he was a guy that was in on the joke. Indeed, one of his little phrases, which originated on the Q boards, though I don't know if it originated with Q himself, was, disinfo is necessary, which pretty much covered him for any lie he wanted to tell. The more one looked into Q, the more discordian it looked. I pointed out to him that if disinfo was necessary, that it surely didn't matter how much I believed from the posts, trying to use crazy logic to get myself off the hook for having to look at any of his silly proofs. But of course, he would have none of that. Even though he insisted he wanted me to think for myself, he didn't. He wanted me to read the materials he provided and then agree with him about it, that it was a fantastically well-constructed and logical plan to save the world, beautifully engineered and detailed, and it was going to work. We would all live in a better world once Trump's storm happened, as it already was, behind the scenes, and I was time-wasting messing about on my blog, going down all the wrong rabbit holes in an amusingly confused way, instead of seeing what he was showing me right here, which made perfect sense to anyone who wasn't being deliberately stupid. I'm sorry I'm not very good raw material for you to work with, I admitted. Maybe I would be better if I was one of the Christian types who just had faith for no other reason than faith itself. He was always looking for faith from me, as he himself was so keen on the God thing, but I was never able to produce it, despite many good conversations on the topic. We discussed the definition of God, as I found people often didn't have a clear idea of what they believed in to start with, and this created all kinds of confusions when they discussed it with you. I'd long since given up wanting to discuss God, but it was a keen topic of cues, or should I say, Jays, in our DM conversations. And it turned out that he saw God as not the God in the sky, so much as the guy in the pattern of things, burnt into the geometry of life. 
This was at least an intelligent starting point for discussion, I thought. But of course, like so many of our discussions, it led nowhere you could say was logical, as it led to the idea of transcending the horror of everyday life and descending towards the perfection of God as the human race improved, but still apparently not being able to explain why we needed to. The closest I ever got to an answer during our discussions was that he saw good and evil as forces outside ourselves and that evil only existed in this plane and it was constantly on the attack against good. Elsewhere, on the other plane, was the only place safe from this and this seemed to be why he was so keen for me to believe in God. Yet, if I were to reduce his argument down to this or versions of it, he was bound to say I didn't understand him at all. I seemed to be terribly poor in the understanding department all around, and I wondered why he was going to all the trouble of talking to me, as he was constantly getting annoyed at my stupidity. I'd point out he seemed annoyed, and he'd say he was just frustrated, as I didn't understand at all. We were two very different people, and he wasn't very satisfied with the model he had in return for the model he'd provided for me as the perfect woman he imagined I could be under his tutelage. Was I going to be let continue on with my own opinions on things, I wondered, or would this keep up? Oddly, he turned to me suddenly once after a long conversation about God, and he'd said, Please don't take my faith away. I felt so protective of him then that he could say such a thing after the force of the energies he'd put into several stabs at converting me to belief previously. I assured him that I couldn't, even had I wanted to. How can you take faith away? I asked him. I mean, if you've got it, you've just got it and nobody can come along and just whip it away from you. I always wanted a rest from these conversations. They were heavy and could go on for up to an hour, and he tended to jump around to other topics in an erratic way when you were at your most logical. Yet he wanted to have them, so I obliged and enjoyed many of them, preferring them to the conversations about QAnon stuff. The only thing I really gleaned properly out of the Q-related conversations were that it was important I believed he was Q, that his name was Jay Quinn, and he couldn't tell me where he lived or about his daily life, but he could tell me he was 38 and he was the guy in the photos, and that he loved me to bits. And when it was all over, this storm, soon, we'd do all the things we wanted together. In the meantime, he assured me, just buckle up and enjoy the ride. OK, I said, I'll buckle up for the winter. But come spring, if the storm doesn't arrive and the swamp isn't clear, you'll still be asked, are we meeting now? And if the answer is no, or I'm told to wait longer, like the queue people get told all the time in the queue posts when the storm hasn't come, I'm off. Seemed fair enough in my mind. I don't think he was pleased somehow, as it got a bit quiet and there was a pause in the gifts before we said goodnight. Me posting a wave and he a sideways kiss emoji 
facing the wrong direction, as it always did, landing on my own younger, more attractive, gamer avatars back. I knew we'd meet again, but began to seriously doubt we'd ever meet in person.